Welcome to Season 2 of The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. As always, maps and images from this episode can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions, please send them to almostforgottenpodcast at gmail, or find me on Twitter at at the almost forgot, or go to the website. With that, let's begin. Early in 323 BC, the empire started by Philip II of Macedon and greatly expanded by his son Alexander the Great stretched from Greece to India. This empire was only slightly smaller than the Achaemenid Persian Empire that he had conquered, as they hadn't taken all of the territory on the edges. It was, though, the second largest empire the world had yet seen, and held maybe a quarter, by some estimates I've seen even 40%, of the world's population. And it may have ended up being relatively stable, other than the restless Greek city-states, as most of the old Persian Empire was used to being ruled by a conqueror from a different ethnic group for the last 250 years, without too much unrest. Alexander was trying to create a more integrated empire, with the European and Asian leaders intermarrying and he was certainly looking at further territorial expansion. But, on June 11, 323 BC, everything changed. Whether it was deliberate poison, or the result of maybe malaria defeating an immune system already compromised thanks to war wounds and heavy drinking, Alexander died after battling an illness for a week, and everything began to fall apart. His empire had entered what was essentially a civil war that would last for the next 40 years, and it was led by his closest companions and best generals. These men were known as the Diatiki, the Greek word for successors. They fought for primacy in the remnants of Alexander's empire, and while they are not nearly as well remembered today as Alexander, or the Romans that followed them, they founded the empires that ruled the region for the next two centuries. With that, they helped shape the culture of what became the Greek East of the Roman world for the next millennia. This is the story of the Diatiki. This is the Almost Forgotten. This episode will have a slightly different feel than the previous ones from last season. Instead of focusing on one almost forgotten individual, we'll look at several. But to keep with the basic structure of the podcast, while there will be other characters that play important roles, there will be a main character. Only this time, there are actually five main characters, if that makes sense. Those men are Perdiccas, Eumenes, Ptolemy, Antigonus, and Seleucus. Because of that, it'll take several episodes, five in total, but hopefully the journey will be an interesting one. I'll introduce each one of the characters in depth when the time comes. But first, the setting. In 323, at Alexander's death, his empire reached from Greece, through Asia Minor, down to Egypt, and almost everything that lay east, all the way to the Indus River Valley in modern-day Pakistan. It was essentially made up of the Macedonian kingdom, and I know we say Macedon and Macedonia, but it was clearly pronounced Macedon and Macedonia, and 
it's not going to be easy for me. I'll do my best not to say Macedonia. Um, but I decided that I had to make a choice and I didn't want to willfully mispronounce it for the entire five episodes. So I'm going to do my best to say Macedon. Um, if I mispronounce it, I apologize, but I'm sure I will mispronounce plenty of names as well. So stay tuned for that. To the west of Alexander's empire, Rome was just starting to expand beyond its immediate neighborhood, 40 years after the death of Marcus Furius Camillus, profiled in Season 1, Episode 1. Rome had defeated its nearest neighbors, had emerged victorious from the final Latin War a few years prior, and was entering into what became known as the Second Samnite War. The real power on that side of the Mediterranean was the Carthaginian Empire, which controlled the northern coast of Africa from just west of Gibraltar to western Libya, as well as ports in southern Iberia and Gaul and the Balearic Islands and Corsica and Sardinia. It had recently been pushed almost entirely off Sicily by Greek colonists. In Africa, the kingdom of Kush, centered around Meroe, was in the process of collapse after over seven centuries of relevance, which included a stint as the 25th dynasty of Egypt, and trade as far as India. Aksum was a bit to the south and east, and may have helped this collapse. Although an outright conquest of Meroe didn't happen for quite a while, power in the region south of Egypt was beginning to shift to Aksum. In the western hemisphere, the Maya were on the verge of entering what is considered their classical period, and sites like El Mirador and Tikal were already flourishing. The Chavan culture was the most dominant of several groups that were present on the Pacific side of the Andes. To the east of Alexander's empire, India was ruled by the Nanda Empire, soon to be conquered and eclipsed by Chandragupta Maurya, profiled in Season 1, Episode 2, who met Alexander while he was trying to take the Indus Valley region. Further east, China was in the middle of what would become known as the Warring States period, as the Zhou dynasty had effectively lost control and seven different states fought over territory and influence. Shang Yang of the Qin Kingdom had just written a book that defined his philosophy, known as legalism. And in Babylon, certainly the largest city in the world west of India at the time, a growing state of panic was beginning to set in. Alexander was only 33, and he died with no succession plan. He had no children yet, and one half-brother, Arhideus. Actually, it's probably better phrased that he had one brother still alive. Alexander had killed the rest of his male relatives to prevent any challenges to his throne. So why did Arhideus survive? It seems that Alexander liked having him around, but more importantly, he was considered mentally unfit to rule. Nobody knows exactly what this means, but he probably had some significant mental disability and he went unmentioned in the chronicles of his half-brother's conquest of Persia, given no command or responsibility. He was, however, in Babylon at the time of Alexander's death. Also in the capital were some of Alexander's most important companions. This included his seven bodyguards, Perdiccas, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, Leonidas, Python, Aristonus, and Pusestus. The number seven was a traditional Macedonian number for bodyguards. These were his most trusted men, the closest members of his inner circle. The other men in his inner circle were actually known as companions. As he lay dying, Alexander gave one of these bodyguards, Perdiccas, his signet ring. 
Perdiccas was one of the leaders of the army, and behind Alexander, he was perhaps considered second only to the popular and extremely well-respected General Craterus. Perdiccas may have been a little bit older than Alexander, but he was certainly of his generation, and he had gained prominence by killing the assassin of Alexander's father, Philip II. Perdiccas was born in Macedon to a nobleman who was descended from one of the many tribal princes in the country. Before they even left Europe, Perdiccas had proven his worth to Alexander. While they were campaigning in Thrace, east of Macedon, Thebes revolted on the rumor of the young king's death. Two weeks and about 240 miles later, he was at the walls of the city. Perdiccas led the attack on the gates of Thebes and stormed the city, where he was severely wounded. He commanded infantry in the campaigns against Persia and led a phalanx unit at Gaugamela. By the time the army reached India, he was commanding cavalry and was often alongside Hephaestion, Alexander's most trusted companion, who was also considered to be his lover. While they were going through the difficult Indian campaign, Alexander took an arrow to the chest. Soldiers were sure he would die. He tried to take the arrow shaft out himself, but he couldn't do it. Perdiccas came in and used his sword to cut the arrow out. He was not one to back down when facing a crisis. The signet ring he was given was important because it was a real symbol of power. It was what Alexander used to seal his documents, so the holder of it could give orders to the army and conduct official business. In theory, Perdiccas was given the authority over the empire. In practice, though, there was a leading group of generals who would have to be willing to submit to his authority. The day after Alexander died, his seven bodyguards, as well as some other companions such as Eumenes of Cardia, met to figure out just how to proceed. Eumenes, a Greek, was a different sort than the others. He was a bit older and was brought along by Alexander as a kind of scribe or secretary. But he was considered one of his wisest counselors and was given military roles later in the campaigns. A man in his 40s, he was given his first command, perhaps his first time really fighting at all, in India when he took a small cavalry contingent to capture a town. Not long after, he was given command of an elite companion cavalry, a group of the army's most important squadron. It was an interesting role for a non-Macedonian, non-warrior, who might be expected to lead a light cavalry group, but not a corps of the elite heavy cavalry. What this appointment did, however, was thrust Eumenes, a man basically considered at best a wise counselor, at worst nothing more than a secretary by the battle-hardened Diatiki, into a membership in the military leadership. He remained an outsider, though, a fact that would both hurt and help him down the road. Conspicuously absent was Craterus, a general that was maybe the most respected by the soldiers other than Alexander himself. He had been sent west with 10,000 veterans as Alexander, after a dozen years of campaigning, was giving some of his oldest soldiers the retirement they deserved. At least that's how the story goes. The other part of the story was that he no longer needed only Macedonians now that he had submission of all the Persian troops. As he was integrating his empire and making it more Asian, it's probably not a coincidence that he sent his most respected and influential veteran troops home. Also not a coincidence, he sent Craterus to lead them home. 
Of all of his companions, the revered Craterus was one of the least receptive of Alexander's embracing of Persian customs and behaviors. Craterus was sent with a job besides bringing troops home for retirement. He was also to relieve another important man, Antipater. Antipater was about 65 years old, and he was one of the most trusted advisors to King Philip and even a little bit older than him. He had been keeping everything safe and sound at the home front ever since the 20-year-old Alex left with the bulk of the army. This wasn't always easy, as there were unruly tribes to the north and often rebellious Greek city-states to the south. Antipater and Craterus weren't the only important men missing, but we'll get to the other ones eventually. Back to Babylon, though. Perdiccas, the man with the signet ring, unsurprisingly began the meeting by stressing the status quo. He was essentially in charge now, and of course he wanted it to remain that way. While Alexander didn't have any direct heirs yet, he actually had a wife. More than one, but for now let's focus on the one that was pregnant with what would be his only legitimate child. When Alexander got to Afghanistan during his conquest before entering India, he had difficulty subduing the local population. He had arranged to marry a local princess in order to incorporate the region into his empire. The Greeks called the region Bactria, and the woman's name was Roxanne. She was now pregnant, due in just a couple of months. If she had a boy, Perdiccas suggested, then they would have their emperor. In the meantime, one would presume, he said, coyly and less directly than I am now, they could all serve as leaders of the empire with Perdiccas as the actual regent. Nearchus, who had led Alexander's fleet on a harrowing journey down the Indus River and who was, like Eumenes, a Greek, had a different take. He wasn't a bodyguard, but he was a lifelong close friend of the conqueror, and he suggested that Alexander's illegitimate child, Heracles, be named emperor. The rest of the group gave a grumble of disapproval, and then Aristonus, one of the bodyguards, suggested Perdiccas should be the king. After all, he was given the ring. Ptolemy, on the other hand, put forth the idea that because Arhidaeus wasn't fit to lead, the empire should be led by a group of generals rather than one man. They would meet together and vote on major issues in order to make decisions. He didn't necessarily want to deny Arhidaeus or the potential new baby boy the kingship. Rather, he was trying to make a play for a group regency. The plan would essentially take power from the hands of Perdiccas. Perdiccas, though, won the day. He would take control of the regency in Asia, along with Leonatus, who would be his second-in-command. Leonatus was another one of the bodyguards. He was actually there and helped Perdiccas way back when they killed Philip II's assassin. Leonatus gained further glory when he and another bodyguard, Pucestus, defended a wounded Alexander when they were cut off from the rest of the Macedonian troops in India. Europe's regency would be handled by Craterus and Antipater. Antipater remained in Macedon, and there really wasn't any need for the status quo to change there. Craterus, marching extremely slowly and deliberately towards Europe, with an army of 10,000 of the most seasoned veterans, may have been given the role in order to prevent him from turning back towards Babylon to express his dissatisfaction. It may have seemed like a good plan to most of the companions, but unfortunately the infantry did not feel the same. 
A prominent phalanx commander named Meliager was sent to win over their support, but they were the infantry, not some elite cavalry members. These were working-class warriors. They didn't want Heracles, who was a quarter Asian and illegitimate, or Roxanne's half-Bactrian unborn son to rule. The role demanded a true Macedonian, and Arhideus, Alexander's brother, was the perfect fit. And by perfect, I mean he was the only one that could fit. Sure, he may have been mentally deficient, prone to outbursts and fits of rage, and completely unqualified to rule, but he was Philip's only living son. The veterans present proclaimed Arhideus king, maybe even as the bodyguard and the other companions were meeting in their tent. They were not interested in non-Macedonian rulers. Meliager was convinced by these troops once he went to win them over. Maybe he felt that way himself anyway. Perhaps if Craterus had been in Babylon, Meliager would have had a strong ally to his cause. Surrounded by the infantry, he might have begun to think about how many of them there really were, relying on their superiority over the other troops present, and thought he was suddenly the one in the real position of power in Babylon. Not that his phalanx was the only group present. Pukestis had been rewarded for saving the king along with Leonatus in India, by being named the governor or satrap of Persis, and had brought 20,000 of the troops from there with him to Babylon. But they weren't the vaunted Macedonian phalanx. With his veterans behind him, Meliager seized the opportunity. He joined with his infantry and proclaimed Arhideus king, now named Philip III. The whole lot of them stormed the palace, demanding to visit Alexander's body. Perdiccas wasn't really an enemy of these troops, it was more of a disagreement, but he now stood to lose the most. He stayed while everyone else fled, and he tried to convince them to go with his plan. But he was becoming more unpopular by the minute, and decided to leave town like the rest of the companions, except for Eumenes, who insisted that his Greek heritage made him the perfect man to take neither side and to try to help the groups reconcile. Meliager sent his men to arrest Perdiccas outside the city, but when they arrived, the army's top general shamed them into backing off. That pretty much spelled the end for Meliager. If Meliager was more ruthless, he would have stopped Perdiccas from ever leaving the palace. Instead, he learned early just how cold-blooded you needed to be to make a power play when Macedonians were involved. Perdiccas had the cavalry and the remaining troops outside of the city cut off its food supply. After three days, the veteran phalanx insisted Meliager needed to figure out a way to make everything right. Thanks to efforts from Eumenes, he and Perdiccas agreed to meet and get it all sorted. The troops welcomed Perdiccas back into the fold, and a compromise that Eumenes came up with was reached. Arhideus could indeed be King Philip III, I'll call him Philip Arhideus to attempt to avoid confusion. And then, if Roxanne ended up having a boy, he would be the second king. So already they're planning on having two kings if Roxanne has a boy. This won't cause problems in the future at all, I'm sure. Meliager was named the second in command of Asia in place of Leonatus, and the regency was back in place with Perdiccas as the nominal leader of it all. 
Copernicus arranged for a special ceremonial gathering of the army, a traditional Macedonian event that was something of a purification ritual. It drew the infantry out to the wide plains where his cavalry surrounded them, and there, rather than just a nice little ceremony to please the gods, Perdiccas demanded the leaders of the mutiny. Meleager's staunchest supporters were taken and killed, trampled by elephants. Meleager fled or hid, but he was soon caught and executed. After that, things remained relatively calm in Babylon for the next month or so, although Perdiccas, perhaps along with Roxanne, had Alexander's two other wives, Persian noblewomen, executed as well. Speaking of Roxanne, she soon gave birth, and lo and behold, it was a boy. With the news everyone was waiting for, a dual kingship and regency for, what, the next 15 years or so, as long as little Alexander IV survived, it was probably time for everyone to get back to the job of actually ruling a vast, multi-ethnic empire. Each of the bodyguards, other than Perdiccas, who was essentially the regent, was given an area to govern. The title, Satrap, meant something like protector of the province, which went along with the Persian term satrapy, which meant province, although both are really Greek attempts to say the words in Old Persian. Ptolemy was given the satrapy of Egypt, maybe the richest area of the empire. Ptolemy was one of the more powerful of the seven bodyguards, and Perdiccas had to keep him happy, despite the earlier challenge. But a rivalry between the two men was clearly developing. A man named Cleomenes was the current satrap in Egypt, and was kept on as Ptolemy's second-in-command, probably to keep an eye on him, for Perdiccas. Antipater would get to keep Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus became the satrap of Thrace, the area on the European side of the Hellespont and the Bosporus, extending west and north into a realm of unruly, uncooperative tribes. These would keep Lysimachus busy for a while, and Antipater had his own issues to deal with concerning some unruly city folk, but we'll get to that. Asia Minor, or Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, had a few important regions, the area covering the crossing from Europe in the northwest was given to Leonidas. It wasn't a particularly wealthy area, but it was of strategic importance. A man named Antigonus Monophthalmus was the satrap of Phrygia in Central Asia Minor, and he kept his role. Older than the other companions, but not as old as Antipater, he had been left behind to be the satrap there, as the Macedonian train of conquest rolled through the area. One of the main players in this drama, I'll introduce Antigonus more properly in the next episode. Python was assigned to the satrapy of Media, and Pukestus had the satrapy of Persis renewed to him. Out east, Taxilis and Porus were nominally named client kings, and soon had to deal with Chandragupta Maria. There were other satrapies and other satraps, but the sources don't necessarily agree on all of the combinations. Some were less important than others, perhaps even subordinate. One more of note, though, was what was given to Eumenes. The Greek that was recently named Commander of Cavalry was given his own province to govern. The area of Cappadocia, up through that of Pontus, Armenia, and other areas familiar to listeners who have heard the episode on Mithridates the Great, were his as long as he could take them. 
You see, in a bit of Hellenistic island hopping, Alexander hadn't really subdued the region on his way to destroying the Achaemenid Empire. There was still Persian and other resistance in the area. Eumenes was longtime friends with his new neighbor Antigonus, and his troops were asked to help. Craterus, the general with all those veterans, wasn't really given a clear role, at least not to our eyes. Perdiccas may have ensured him of supremacy in Europe after Antipater was gone, or he may not have. Craterus was at this time in Cilicia, a region in today's southeastern Turkey. It's hard to imagine, with all of the spoils of war being handed out, the well-respected, well-armed, and not that far away Craterus was not given some sort of prominent, or at least honorific, role. After giving out lands to rule, and a few other titles and jobs, one of the first things the group did was decide to ignore Alexander the Great's next set of plans. Alexander, not surprisingly, hadn't just planned to sit down and rule once he was in Babylon. He had more places to attack. His idea was to first sail down the Euphrates River to the Persian Gulf, where he would launch an invasion of the Arabian Peninsula. Perdiccas would lead his land forces, while Eumenes would be at the head of the vaunted companion cavalry. In fact, when Alexander first fell ill, and he didn't realize he was dying, he began planning the invasion, as the Arabs had not submitted to his rule, and their access to the sea could make them an important part of his vast empire's trade network. After taking Arabia, the army would travel west and refresh in the satrapy of Egypt before continuing on to take the rest of North Africa. They would take the small kingdoms of Cyrenaica, modern eastern Libya, before moving on further west all the way to the Pillars of Hercules. That means that, failing to take India, Alexander was going after maybe the only other real big power he knew of, the Carthaginians. But his successors weren't ready for that they still had to figure out exactly how this empire would be run. Of course, with the death of the emperor, a few areas weren't really that interested in being told what to do anymore. The biggest problems, though, came from two very different groups of Greeks sitting on opposite ends of the empire. The first troublesome group of Greeks was in Greece itself. Going back a bit, a Macedonian named Harpalus, who didn't serve in the army because of some physical disability, had fled to Athens. He was a close friend of Alexander's, one of those noblemen who grew up in Pella, the capital of Macedon, with him, and had taken advantage of this friendship. Caught embezzling funds, he was forgiven and sent to look over the treasury in Babylon. But when the army was in India and people thought they might never return, Harpalus lived like a libertine. As the army began to return west, he decided to make a break for it. He showed up in Athens in 324 BC, the year before Alexander died, with 700 talents of stolen gold. He offered to use that money to fund a rebellion there. In addition, unemployed Greek mercenaries cast out of Alexander's service, led by a former soldier named Leosthenes, were gathering in the southern Peloponnese and were looking for work. Athens had the money and the soldiers, but they didn't yet have the will. Once news of Alexander's death reached the city, though, it became an easier choice. By the fall of 323 BC, they had decided on rebellion. 
They joined forces with the Aetolian League, a collection of city-states on the western end of what is now central Greece, on the northern side of the Gulf of Corinth, just north of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. This is what Antipater was confronting in Europe as Alexander's empire was being divvied up. According to James Rahm in his book, Ghost on the Throne, quote, To underscore what was at stake, the Greeks dubbed their fight against Antipater the Hellenic War. The name cast the fight as a sequel to the glorious struggle against the Persians. Once again, Greek cities were in league, fighting to defend their shared Hellenism. No matter that the Macedonians too had cloaked themselves in the mantle of Hellenism, portraying their invasion of the Persian Empire as retribution for the invasion by Xerxes. Unquote. That is the irony. The Greeks called this a war for Greek freedom, the Hellenic War. But the Macedonians oversaw the spread of Hellenism to the east over the next 200 years. As the Greek allies gathered forces, they marched north to deal with the inevitable conflict with Antipater, who was, as you may recall, in charge of the home front. They had 30,000 Greeks, many of them veterans of the conquests of Persia. Antipater did not have nearly as many men and began recruiting cavalry from Thessaly, a Greek region just south of Macedonia. Leosthenes marched his troops past Thermopylae, knowing holding it would be key, and confronted Antipater not far up the coast. When the two armies lined up, Antipater's cavalry defected to the Greek side. They were from Thessaly and were well-respected cavalry, with ties to their southern Greek neighbors as well as their northern Macedonian ones. Antipater, without a cavalry, fled with his forces and holed up in a nearby town of Lamia. The Greeks began a siege, and it started off quite well for them. The Macedonian forces were beginning to starve, and after some time, Antipater sent an offer of truce. Of course he acknowledged some concessions to the Athenians, but they refused. They wanted his unconditional surrender. Just as things were looking up for the Greek allies, tragedy struck. A small Macedonian raiding party attacked some of their troops that were trying to dig trenches. Leosthenes came with reinforcements to relieve the area, but a stone from a catapult on the walls of the city managed to strike him on the head, and he died two days later. The Greeks still had a serious advantage in the conflict, though. If Antipater didn't get help soon, he would have to surrender. So he sent a letter out to Leonidas, the bodyguard who was given the small and relatively poor satrapy of northwestern Anatolia. If you recall, he was originally given all of Asia under Perdiccas as the number two man, but for whatever reason during Meleager's revolt, his station was diminished and he never got reassigned after it was all over. Leonidas also got word from Olympias, Alexander's mother. If you are one of those people who think that Alexander had something to do with his father Philip's death, you probably believe that he was in league with his mother, Olympias. Regardless of the truth there, what was true at the time for her was that she, her daughter Cleopatra, and her grandson through Roxanne, Alexander IV, could probably use a protector and an ally. Perdiccas was a protector as regent, but she really didn't know if he was an ally. She saw what was going on in Greece and thought maybe she'd be able to convince Leonidas to come, in the name of her grandson, of course, and maybe even marry her daughter Cleopatra off to him. 
Faced with invitations from Antipater and Olympias, two people with a fierce rivalry between them, Leonidas saw an opportunity. He could ride into Europe a hero, marry Alexander's sister, serve under the aging Antipater, and see how things went from there, or what old men died suddenly from alleged but never proven poisoning or whatnot. He turned to Eumenes, who was nearby, trying to get help obtaining the yet-to-be-conquered satrapy he was so kindly given. Eumenes was seen as intelligent, cunning, and most of all, Greek. He could be trusted as an advisor, even as a military officer, it seems, without ever being able to grab real power because of his ethnicity. But probably because of this ethnicity, a few of the leading men of the empire looked down on him. Antipater was one of these people, and the two men did not get along. Eumenes refused Leonidas' offer, fearing Antipater would just have him killed when he got to Europe. Leonidas tried to win him over by showing him the letter from Olympias. It wasn't just about relieving a fellow satrap anymore. Leonidas was proposing a civil war in defiance of Perdiccas. Eumenes slowly backed out the door, leaving and pretending to consider the offer, but that night he escaped with a group of cavalry. Instead of going to Cappadocia, though, to conquer his satrapy, he went straight to Babylon to warn Perdiccas of what was happening. Leonidas didn't really need Eumenes anyway, so he crossed the Hellespont to save Macedonia. He entered the capital of Pella at the head of what seems a bit like a Roman triumph. He and his troops were actually the first to have returned from a dozen years of conquering the Persian Empire, defeating the world's superpower, and going to the edge of the world. But he didn't have time to stay, and he took his forces down to meet the Greek rebels. He couldn't raise a much bigger cavalry thanks to the defection of their neighbors in Thessaly, but he brought his strong phalanx with him. On hearing the news of his arrival, the Greeks mostly abandoned their siege of Lamia. Not only could they not fight both Leonidas and maintain the siege, they knew they had a cavalry advantage and an infantry deficit. They wanted to engage him on an open plain. Leonidas was outnumbered and he made a poor decision to engage the Greeks. Their cavalry overwhelmed him before he could attack with his infantry. He was killed in the battle, although the infantry story went differently. The Greeks, with their shorter spears, couldn't touch the Macedonian phalanx and didn't even try. Antipater was rescued and retreated back to Pella. With the Macedonians put to flight, the Greeks had a real chance to once again defeat the neighborhood superpower and be a free people. There was another spot of trouble for them, though. Antipater had also asked for help from Craterus, who was still hanging out in Anatolia with his 10,000 seasoned veterans, and he was on his way. They sent their triremes to take control of the waters around the Hellespont to keep Craterus or any other relief force from crossing. Unfortunately for them, they were defeated twice in the Aegean by the large Macedonian naval force. This was a consequential set of battles. We don't have a lot of information on them, but Athens had still controlled much of the sea since its heyday after Salamis. Now, without money or manpower, naval supremacy transferred to the Macedonian Empire. Craterus was able to cross with his 10,000 men, as well as a large group of cavalry. Combining with Leonidas's leaderless army, Craterus's men and his own, Antipater now led a force of over 40,000 men. They engaged with the Greeks, suddenly much more desperate, but still with a force of nearly 30,000 in Thessaly. 
The Greeks launched their Thessalian cavalry at the Macedonians, and they may have been well matched. But the Macedonian phalanx overwhelmed the rebel alliance and pushed them back to the high ground. The Greeks could mount a defense from that position, but an attack was useless. The Greek cavalry disengaged, and the battle was over. It was a relatively small loss of life, but the next day, with the alliance beginning to falter, the Greeks surrendered. Unlike the fate of Thebes at the hand of Alexander in 335 BC, Antipater spared Athens from destruction. But it couldn't remain as a free client state. It was denied its democratic form of government, and an oligarchy of more cooperative city leaders was installed. And, as a final blow, a Macedonian garrison was installed in Piraeus, the suburb of Athens that served as its main route to the sea, its port, and its lifeline in a time of siege. While the city was pretty much allowed to carry on, a few of the main rebel leaders were not. One of those men was Demosthenes, who was later called one of the ten great orators of Attica. Not long after his death, Athens erected a statue of him, and nearly three centuries later, Cicero called him the perfect orator. Maybe the most famous victim of the Hellenic War, it is noteworthy that a great democrat and speaker died at the same time as the city's independence and democracy essentially ended for good. Meanwhile, an alliance of sort had formed. As Robin Waterfield wrote in Dividing the Spoils, quote, The marriage of Craterus to Antipater's daughter Phyla sealed their new alliance. Ptolemy, who, as we have already seen in Babylon, had no love for Perdiccas, also aligned himself with the emerging coalition by accepting another of Antipater's daughters, unquote. By the end of 322 BC, the West was calm for the moment, but Craterus and Antipater had linked up with a massive force. They hadn't really defied Perdiccas, but their clear alliance started wheels turning throughout the empire, and an era of peace and tranquility was not in the cards. Next episode, we will learn about the other troublesome spot of Greeks, on the eastern edge of the empire, before turning our attention back to the Fertile Crescent. Thanks for listening.